Jesus, we ask you to come this afternoon and put energy into our hearts, into our minds, into this room. Keep us awake, keep us alert, and keep us focused. And give us your message, we pray in your name. Amen. We have a strange phrase that we use in strange times. Some tragedy will happen, somebody gets a terminal diagnosis, something bad happens, and we don't have a clue what to say, and so what do we say? It's going to be all right. Bob Marley's Three Little Birds, don't worry about a thing because every little thing's going to be all right. And I understand the Aussies, the Australians say, no worries, mate. No worries, mate. I want to start this afternoon by asking you, could you face eternity right now and confidently be able to say no worries might could you face your own death right now or Jesus return with a quiet assurance that everything's going to be all right do you have the assurance of salvation the assurance of eternal life I'm going to pre-say something I'm going to hit Wednesday night but I'm convinced that the only way we can ever face the challenge of holiness is if we know we have the assurance of eternal life. What I'll just oversimplify, the far right of Adventism has tended to think that they had to keep us insecure in order to be motivated to obedience. The far left has tended to go with, don't worry about obedience at all, just be happy. And I think somewhere in the middle is the truth, but I am convinced that if we don't have the assurance of eternal life, then any focus we put on obedience is trying to be good enough to be saved. Can't help it. But if we can have the assurance of eternal life, we are now free to pursue obedience, which Hebrews tells us to do. We're free to pursue it, not to get saved, because we already know we are saved. I believe the assurance of eternal life is vital to our own peace of mind, our own ability to follow Jesus, And I believe it's vital to the subject of holiness and sanctification. So we want to look at the assurance of eternal life this afternoon. I've been challenged with this subject ever since about a year and a half into my ministry. So that puts us at about 38 and a half years now. And I've been amazed at all the arguments I've heard from people that we shouldn't be able to have the assurance of eternal life, that supposedly there's a couple of Ellen White quotes that says we can't have it, and so on. I run into this Bible verse, my favorite verse to... uh, to preach on. This is the testimony. What does the word testimony mean? Where do you give testimony? Court or church? And if you're in court, a testimony has to be first person. I saw it. Not my brother told me that that's what happened, but I saw it. And that's the meaning in the Greek. This is the testimony. Here's the first-hand experience, John says. God has given us eternal life. That means already. If he's already given it, we can have it now. Amen? And where is this life? This life is packaged in the person of Jesus Christ. Not in a denomination, not in a doctrinal structure, not in a behavioral life pattern. It's packaged in a person. And by the way, when you get that person, you get everything else. He who has the Son has the life, literally, talking about that eternal life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. So John's very clear. you got Jesus, you're in. If you don't have Jesus, you're out. 
And then he says, now, here's why I've written this to you. I've written these things to you who believe, believe is a relational word, trust, in the name of the Son of God, all that Jesus is, that you may what? Know. Know that you have eternal life. I'm sorry. I have to go with Scripture. The Bible makes it very clear that we can know we're saved. If you were to ask me, Pastor Gary, are you married? And I thought, and I scratched my head, and I contemplated, and then I said, well, I, I think so. I hope so. You'd know there was something seriously wrong here, right? I know that I'm in a relationship with my wife, and it's the relationship that makes the marriage, not the piece of paper. And I know I'm in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I can know that we're married, Jesus and me. And I can know that I have eternal life. It's not a haughty thing. It's a humble, I can't believe it's true. But Jesus says you can know you're saved. We want to talk about that today. We've made some progress, I believe, in the last 20 or 30 or 40 years in Adventism to where we're actually able to at least give some of our people that understanding that we can have a quiet assurance of our eternal life even though we have not yet reached some state of behavioral perfection. We can still face life day by day, moment by moment, knowing that everything's going to be all right. How can we have that assurance? My cousin Lee taught Bible, I mentioned earlier, at Auburn Academy for nine years. Every senior that went through that school for nine years, and there were like 400 students at that time, that was the high point of the school, he had hundreds and hundreds of Adventist young people raised through our schools, now seniors in high school. He had all of them in his class for nine years, and at the end of his nine years, getting ready to move to a new assignment, he got out the file of all this he did a nine-week class. So at the beginning of that session, he would do a quiz. And he went over these quizzes. The quiz uh, was very simple. Number one, oh, by the way, five questions, no grade, no name, just speak your mind. If someone asks you to define what is a Christian, what would you say? Number two, if someone asks you, what do I have to do in order to go to heaven? What would your answer be? Would you like your children of your own one day to have a spiritual experience similar to your present one? Yes or no, and explain your answer. Number four, if you were killed in a car accident later today, would you be resurrected with the righteous? Yes or no? Explain your answer. Number five, do you have any sort of daily time alone with God for the purpose of becoming better acquainted with him? Yes or no? After nine years of these tests, hundreds of them, Lee got out the file and decided to do some tallying. And he discovered that 90-plus percent, usually high 90 percentile, on every one of these questions came out like this. What is a Christian? 90 plus percent. Trying to be good, try not to be bad. Behavior. Trying to do the right thing. Number two. What do I have to do in order to go to heaven? Do good at number one. 90 plus percent. Number three. Would you want your children one day to have an experience like yours spiritually? 90 plus percent, no, I am miserable. This is like trying to, trying to be good by not being bad is killing me off. It's like trying to sit on a keg of dynamite and keep it from blowing up. And frankly, it's, I'm discouraged, I'm failing, I'm miserable, and as soon as I'm out of here, I'm out of here. Adventist statistics. In North America, 
There are currently about one million Seventh-day Adventist members. There are currently two million ex-Seventh-day Adventists. And of the million current, less than 50% attend church even once a month. So you can be clear that there are five non-attending or those who have severed their connection to everyone who's even in church once a month. Why? We're losing the vast majority of our kids. North American Division statisticians have suggested that if we had kept 80% of our kids biologically for the last 100 years, we'd have over 8 million members in North America. Our kids are opting out because they don't know Jesus. If you were killed in a car accident later today, would you be resurrected with the righteous? 90 plus percent said, no, I'd be lost because I'm not doing good enough at number one. You know, any time our focus is on behavior or performance, we will never have the assurance of eternal life and we'll never have behavior or performance. We may be able to grit and determine and white knuckle it through a few issues, but eventually Satan will take us down because we know behind all that attempts to look good, our hearts are still pretty bad, corrupt. Number five, do you have any sort of daily time to get better acquainted with Jesus? Ninety plus percent said no, and many of them said I didn't even know that was an option. In 1990, we got 13,000 responses from a value genesis study of our uh, Adventist high school students. In 2000, we got 18,000 more responses. And after all the money and all the time was spent on value genesis, we discovered two things. Our Seventh-day Adventist young people lack the assurance of eternal life, And they don't have a grace orientation, which is a nice way of saying they are totally works performance behavior oriented. So if our young people feel that way, what about our old people? Many of you will know the name Dan Matthews. He was the head of Lifestyle Magazine, Faith for Today, a number of years back. Understand he's still alive. And uh, as retired pastors do, they move to an area with a large church and they volunteer for the staff. So Dan Matthews retired Southern California, volunteered on the staff of a large church and ended up visiting the elderly, the senior saints. And somebody asked him how he liked his job and he said, well, it's a little frustrating. He said, the majority of the old Adventist seasoned saints, when he visits them and as he's leaving, he says, what would you like me to pray for? He said, the majority come up with something like this, pray that somehow... I can come to know that I'll come up in the right resurrection. I've got fewer years ahead than behind, and I am not sure. Lifelong, mature, Seventh-day Adventist Christian workers that are still struggling, afraid that they're not ready. My grandpa, Hunergard, that would be my mother's dad, very German. I think he was born in 1899. He's one of those people who saw literally from horses to landing on the moon. You know, just an incredible span of life. He was raised a Seventh-day Adventist Christian and remained one all of his life. It's spring of 1985. Grandpa is 86 years old. My wife and I drove down from Northern California to visit the family for the weekend. And for the first time, I saw my grandpa slowed down, leaning on a cane. The year before, he put a new roof on his house all by himself. Grandpa went a mile a minute through 85. 
But now he was slowing down. And I knew he had prostate cancer. He had uh, contracted it several years before, but the doctor said, you know, something else will kill you before the cancer does. He didn't know my grandpa. Grandpa lived right through everything else, and the cancer was about to do him in. So we had lunch at my mom's place that day after church, and we talked the afternoon away. I don't remember anything significant about it, except at the close of the afternoon, his grandpa was about to go to his house. He lived in the Lomeland area. He came over to me and he said, Gary, are you going to come by and visit me before you go home tomorrow? I said, well, yes, Grandpa, I am. He said, are you sure? And I'm thinking, what's up? And I figured it had to be one of two things. Grandpa was the consummate salesman. He fed his family selling Raleigh products out of the back of his car during the Depression. He could sell you anything. Now, the thing with Grandpa, all his products were wonderful. Some of you are old enough to remember, he sold Franz oil filters. You never have to change your oil again. We drove our cars hundreds of thousands of miles without ever changing our oil on Franz oil filters. He sold power punch, motor additive. Your motor would never wear out. He sold stuff to put on your windshield that would, the water just beat it up. You didn't even need windshield wipers. Grandpa, anytime you went over to see Grandpa, if you left without buying something, you felt like a heel because his products were so wonderful. He was just a natural salesman. So I figured... He probably has something he wants to sell me, some new thing he wants to show me. My wife didn't even want me to ever take my checkbook when I went to Grandpa's house. (laughs) Or, or, what crossed my mind was, maybe our conversation this Sabbath afternoon strayed from Sabbath topics, and Grandpa has a word for me. Grandpa wasn't a preacher, but Grandpa had a strong understanding of good Sabbath keeping. So Sunday, midday, Marilyn and I went to see Grandpa George and Grandma Minnie, and we chatted in their living room for a little while, and then Grandpa slowly got up painfully on his cane, and he said, "Uh, Marilyn, you and Minnie stay here in the living room and talk, and I'm going to take Gary in the back room. I want to talk to him. I thought, well, it would be the garage if he was going to sell me something, so it must be the Sabbath conversation. And we went in the back room, And Grandpa sat down, and he pulled a book off the shelf, and he opened it up, and he started to read a passage about Enoch, where the author of the book said something about Enoch walked with God and perfected a Christian character, and we would need a character like Enoch's if we were going to be ready for Jesus to come. And then my grandpa, I looked at him, tears started to run down his face. He closed the book, and he said to me, I'm dying, and I'm not like Enoch yet, and I'm scared. And my first reaction was panic. This is my grandpa. And then my second reaction was, thank you, Jesus, you've just had me spend four years learning and teaching others how to lead a person to Christ. And so I sat down by Grandpa, I opened up the Bible, and I gave him the whole load. As if he was a pagan that never heard of Jesus. We went through the whole thing from beginning to end with all the texts and the logic and illustrations, not only of what Jesus did and our need, but how it fits together and how we can have assurance 
And you know, giving that kind of a presentation to an old Adventist, that's the hardest one to give it to. Because we have lots of yabbits. Heard about yabbits? Yabbit this, yabbit that. Because we have this horrible fear that somehow we're going to lose our edge on obedience if we get too much assurance. And I remember finally I was able to say to Grandpa, does this make sense? And he said, yes. And I said, would you like to pray a prayer right now to receive the assurance of eternal life? I didn't ask him if he wanted to pray a prayer to receive Jesus. He'd done that 70 years before. In fact, Grandpa had been saved that whole time. He just didn't know it. He'd been following Jesus. He wanted to kneel, so I helped him down. And we prayed a prayer. And I had him repeat a simple prayer after me. You know, Heavenly Father, I'm a sinner. And he repeats it. I accept Jesus. And anyway, the focus, though, that I put in the prayer was accepting the assurance of eternal life. That's the best gospel presentation I've ever had the opportunity to give. Within a few weeks, my grandpa was in a hospital bed in my mom's living room. And mom would call me up and say, Grandpa's struggling. And I'd say, well, go read 1 John 1, 9. We confess, he'll forgive. And ask him if he's confessed. Yes, then are you forgiven? Do you believe what it says? Get him to verbalize, yes. Read him this passage in 1 John 5, 11 to 13. Do you have Jesus? Then do you have life? And my mom told me shortly before he died, he was waking up happy. He was waking up even with the words, meet him in the air on his lips. And I believe my grandpa died in peace, knowing he was going to come up in the right resurrection. Then there was my grandma, Vendon, my dad's mom. She lived 15 miles up a country road outside of Kelso Longview, Washington, along the Calweeman River. She lived past the end of the pavement. She was the last phone on the line. And all kinds of amazing things happened in her front yard over the decades. But she had a little cabin, cabin built around the turn of the century. I'm talking about 1890 to 1910. That had no plumbing. And then the cabin in the front had running water, but no toilet. You had to use the outhouse. And that cabin, built in probably the 20s or the 30s, had a pull-down stairway. And at night, you'd go up into the attic and crawl into bed. And you knew you were sleeping with the rafters. If you sat up, you'd conk your head. And you knew there were spiders on those rafters. And as a six or seven-year-old, you're petrified of the dark. She'd pull the stairway up after us. It was totally dark up there. And then I distinctly remember her voice coming through the darkness. Have you confessed every sin? If you have one unconfessed sin when Jesus comes, you will be lost. And I was scared of the spiders, and I was scared of the dark, and I was scared of being lost. That's spiritual terrorism, fear motivation, dread. It's not what God wants. If retirees don't have assurance and live in that kind of dread, and the vast amount of SDA, Seventh-day Adventist high school students, have no assurance, what about those of us in the middle or maybe I should say in the upper middle. You ask a typical Adventist, are you saved? You're likely to hear, I hope so, I hope to be, I'd like to be, pray that I will be, please pray for me. You seldom hear, praise Jesus, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Does it have to be that way? Again, back to this verse. 
Here are the facts. God has given us eternal life already. That life is in his son. If you have Jesus, you have life. I've written this that you can know that you have eternal life. Why do we as Adventists have such a hard time experiencing assurance? And I believe it's because we have a good theology of sanctification and obedience. And by good I mean we don't make obedience and sanctification optional. Behavior is important. And we're scared to death. If we get too comfortable in our salvation, we'll lose our edge on obedience. I believe having the assurance of eternal life will give us our edge on obedience. And that's where we're headed for Wednesday night, but I don't don't want to get ahead. Today we're going to talk about assurance. Now, I believe that if you have a behavioral definition of sin you have to have a behavioral definition of salvation. If you're lost because of your behavior, you get saved by fixing the behavior. But as I suggested last night, the first sin wasn't bad behavior. The first sin was broken relationship that led to bad behavior. So the solution isn't fixing the behavior, it's fixing the relationship that will lead to fixed behavior. So I am convinced, once again, that the only way we're ever going to have the assurance of eternal life is if we move to a fully relational understanding of sin and salvation. And so I want to attack the subject of sin today from that standpoint. And of course, the classic verse about sin is 1 John 3, 4. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Now, whenever I think of law, I think of behavior. When I'm driving... If there's a police behind me, I slow down because I'd rather have him in front of me. Somebody said the other day that they saw a bumper sticker on the back of a police car that says things could be worse, I could be behind you. I slam on the brakes when I see a cop, even if I'm not speeding. Because when I think of law, I think of behavior. How's my behavior doing? I want to look more closely at this verse because initially this verse looks like an obvious, no-brainer behavior verse. Sin is breaking law. It's bad behavior. So let's dig a little deeper. First of all, without apology, I'm going to have to take you through some Greek grammar. All right? I know you'll love it. The first phrase, whoever commits sin, literally in the Greek says, everyone while doing sin. Sin is the word amartia. Come back to that in a moment. The verb in this first phrase is a participle. Now, I never could figure out participles in English, but they're everywhere in Greek. A participle is a verb that's in a conjugation that makes it not the main event, but something that accompanies the main event. For instance, while whistling, I was vacuuming the floor. What's the main event? I'm vacuuming the floor. While whistling is the participle. It's an action accompanying the main action. Got that? Okay, now watch this verse. Everyone while doing sin. That's an accompanying action. That's not the main action. Is doing lawlessness. There's the main action. So the main action is doing lawlessness. The accompanying at the same time is doing sin. Now, wait a minute. Are sin and lawlessness two different things? Or 
in the third phrase, sin is lawlessness. Now, wait a minute. First two phrases sounds like they're different things. Third phrase sounds like they're the same thing. Well, let's dig a little deeper. The word sin is the word amartia. Martia is a word that is used for an allotment, an inheritance, an expectation. Ah is un. So sin is unmeeting expectations. Have anybody experienced that in your life? Failure to meet expectations. Very behavioral. Okay? Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fallen short. That's coming up below expectations. Lawlessness is the word anomia. Ah is un and nomia is law. So it simply means unlaw. Lawless is a very good translation. Now, this verse seems to say that the main verb is you're doing unlaw, and as a result, you're failing to meet expectations, or simultaneously you're failing to meet expectations. You got that? It's hard to see the difference for a minute, but the failure to do the law, whatever the law is, results in simultaneously failing to meet expectations, and yet really, they're the same thing. This verse deals with sin in a much more technical manner than any other verse I know in Scripture. If we're going to try to figure out what lawlessness, the main action, means, maybe we ought to go to Jesus and find out what lawfulness means. One of them, a lawyer, asked him, saying, Teacher, what's the great commandment in the law? Of course, what was he really asking? What's the big sin? You know, what's the number one sin I need to work on overcoming? What's the big commandment? Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first premier and great mega in the Greek. This is the mega commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbors yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now, Jesus says the great commandment, number one and two, are both love. Love is a relational word, not a behavioral word. And yet love will seriously affect your behavior. We can't dumb love down to just being nice and kind. It goes much deeper. It has to be a niceness and a kindness that springs from the heart. We all know that we've been nice and kind to people we were madder than hornets at, right? We're ticked at the cop for pulling us over, but we're going to be nice and kind because we don't want a bigger ticket. We're nice to the old man, so we'll put us in the will. You can act loving without having love in your heart, but if you have love in your heart, you will act loving. So love goes much deeper than just behaving. And notice what it says here, that on these two commandments to love hang all the rest of Scripture, Law and Prophets. That's the whole enchilada of the Old Testament. I see it like a wardrobe with two doors. You know, one door overlaps, so you've got to open one first. So you've got love God, that's the overlapping door. You've got to open that one first, and then you can open love your neighbor, and inside the wardrobe is hanging all the rest of God's commands in Scripture. It's all in there. What Jesus is making very clear here to this behavioral-minded religious lawyer was that obedience is not enough. Obedience without love to God and love to others is not enough. The big commandment is love. The big commandment is not behavior. 
I mean, Jesus had an opportunity here to point out some of their big sins, didn't he? What's the big commandment? Man, he could have nailed them on sin after sin. Not only one, but two, but three, but four, but five. He could have really let them have it. And instead he talks about a relationship with God and our relationship with others. Love is relational. It goes much deeper than behavior. Jesus defines the law primarily in terms of relationship, love, not in terms of behavior. It's about who you know, not about what you do. But who you know will transform what you do. It's not about what you do, it's about who you know, and who you know will transform what you do. I was excited to discover that the Apostle Paul agrees with Jesus. That's good news, isn't it? Oh, no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. And then he quotes the last six commandments, and then he says love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. I want you to catch something here. We have often tried to maintain our behavioral position towards the law and salvation, but sound righteousness by faith by saying, I fall in love with Jesus and that will motivate me to obey in thanks to him. That is not what this verse teaches. Paul does not say love is the motivation to fulfill the law. He says love is the fulfillment of the law. If you and I are loving God with all our heart, soul, and mind and loving our neighbors, ourselves, we will be in sync with every law in Scripture and the universe. Love is the fulfilling of the law. When you're in that relationship, the obedience happens. It's not motivated. This is huge. If you're truly loving God as yourself and loving God with all yourself and loving others as yourself, you'll be in sync with every law in the universe. If you are living love, you will not be misbehaving. But by not misbehaving, you're not necessarily living love. Love is not the motivation to keep the law. Love is the keeping of the law. Jesus defines law keeping as love. Paul says love is the fulfilling. 1 John 4, 7 and 8, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. The Bible doesn't say God is loving. It says he's love to the core. You bring God out, and what comes out is love. And the only way to get love is to get him, and when we have him, we have everything, including salvation. Failing to love will result in all sorts of behavioral issues, while truly loving, will solve all behavioral issues. Jesus and Paul define law-keeping as loving, not as merely behaving. Love will encapsulate behavior, but behavior without love is not obedience. So, sin is lawlessness. The law is defined by Jesus and Paul as being in a love relationship with God. Therefore, lawlessness equals not being in a love relationship with Jesus. Did you follow that logic? The core issue of lawlessness, according to Jesus and Paul, is not misbehavior. The core issue of lawlessness is being out of love relationship with God, which takes us right back to the tree of knowledge of good and evil, where the original sin wasn't bad behavior. It was breaking relationship that led to bad behavior. 
So being out of relationship is the core issue of lawlessness, and it inevitably leads to the simultaneous byproduct of bad behavior. Which brings us to a little bit of uh, summary here and then back to our verse. So if sin is lawlessness, is that true? 1 John 3, 4, it's in the Bible. Love is the fulfillment of the law. Is that true? Jesus and Paul agree. And God is love. Is that true? Okay, you can say it with confidence because it's straight out of the Bible. All right. So have you heard of the transitive property of equality? If A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. So let's play with it this way. If God is A and B is love and C is law, if A equals B, if God equals love, is that true? Have it in the Bible. If love equals the law, fulfilling of the law, we have it in the Bible, then evidently A equals C, God equals his law. For years, we as Seventh-day Adventists have taught that the law is not an imposed standard of behavior. It is a transcript of the character of the God of love. I believe, and I've hammered this for a number of years at my own church, that God's laws are simply a description of how life works. God's never made up a single one of his laws. We're just so far from Eden that we can't get it intuitively. And so anytime God says, thou shalt, he's saying that's how life works. And when he's saying thou shalt not, he's saying that's how life doesn't work. And funny thing, if you go the way that life doesn't work, what's the result? Life doesn't work. It's called death. God doesn't have to kill us. It'll take us out. I believe God's laws are simply a description of how life works. So lawlessness equals godlessness, living apart from God. That's the core issue of sin, and lawfulness equals godfulness, and that's salvation. Now let's go back with that to 1 John 3, 4. Whoever commits sin, missing the mark, everyone while doing, falling short, also is doing, living apart from God. Are you with me? The main action of the sentence is be. That is the finite verb. Doing lawlessness. If you are doing life apart from God, outside of loving God and loving others, outside of love is the fulfilling of the law, if you're post-tree of knowledge of good and evil, outside of a relationship with God, you're doing lawlessness. What did Jesus say? Even if you're doing good deeds, you're doing lawlessness. Even if you're prophesying and raising the dead in his name, you're doing lawlessness because you're living outside of a relationship with God. That is the core issue of sin. And what is the simultaneous inevitable byproduct? You're going to be missing the mark big time, behaviorally. And sin, falling short, is, dare I say, wrapped up in the whole idea of lawlessness living apart from God. So let's put these in a different order. Let's put the made verb first. The one who's living apart from God, doing lawlessness, you're outside of a relationship with God, whether it's good deeds or bad deeds, you're outside of a relationship with God, will be simultaneously falling short of expectations. Oh yes, every one of us have been, because the essence of falling short comes from living life apart from God. Now I know we've done several backflips to get where we are, but I want you to see 
that even in this verse that appears on face value to have a behavioral definition of sin, if we let Jesus and Paul define lawlessness and lawfulness, and we look back to the tree of knowledge of good and evil and realize what the original sin was, the core issue of sin, or the core issue of lawlessness, is living life apart from God. And when you're doing that, you will be missing the mark in terms of behavior. So I believe this verse allows us to actually develop a relational definition of sin and understand how a relational breakdown inevitably results in behavioral mismanagement. So if you want to fix the root problem, what's the root problem? Living life apart from God. What's the inevitable result? Bad behavior. So you've got the core problem and you've got the inevitable symptom. The bad behavior is a symptom of a deeper problem. So you have spots all over your arm. And you go to the doctor and he says, yep, you have the measles. And he says, roll your sleeve up there, keep your sleeve up. And he gets a nice piece of 40 grit sandpaper and he removes those spots. Look at your arm, the ruddy glow of health there. Now, would you go back to that doctor? No way. Why? He thinks you're going to solve the measles by getting rid of the spots. And what have we been doing in attacking sin on a behavioral level? We've been trying to rub out the spots while we haven't been curing the inner disease. The inner problem is life separate from God, which leads to the spots of sin. And you'll never solve the problem by sandpapering out the spots. You have to go to the core issue. So we have kind of some new definitions here, a relational key. Lawlessness, according to Jesus and Paul, is living life apart from God. That equals broken relationship, and that's the inner root problem. Sin is the byproduct, bad behavior of living apart from God, broken behavior, and that's the outer symptom. So if you want to solve the problem, do you attack the symptom or the root problem? Thank you. The root problem. Restored relationship is the only path to restored behavior, and restored behavior is the inevitable byproduct of restored relationship. Please, people, I'm not saying behavior is not important. I'm saying there's only one way to attack behavior. We have bad behavior. We have horrendous behavior. But the only way to solve it is to solve the heart problem. So this is the relational key that I believe can allow us to see salvation as relational and understand our assurance of eternal life. So let's go to this verse. Romans 6.23. Let's take this relational key and plug it in. The wages of sin is death. Now, please, don't read it the way I've heard other people read it. The penalty of God against sin is death. It does not say that. This verse does not say God punishes sin with death. It says sin will kill you. Sin pays a wage. God doesn't impose a penalty. I'm not saying God never kills. I'm not there. Don't go there. But in terms of sin, sin is what takes your life. Sin is lethal. God is not lethal against sin. Sin is lethal. This brings me to two very important words that I want you to understand. 
If we attack this with a behavioral definition of sin, the wage of sin is death, and sin is seen here as primarily behavioral, then we have an imposed punishment. If I misbehave, God will punish me. Which, because the wage of sin is death, eventually we have to admit, if I sin, God will kill me. If you take that as an imposed punishment. And why would a God of justice give you death for stealing a candy bar or death for mass murder? That makes no sense. There must be something inherent in sin that causes death. So if we go to a relational model of sin, a relational definition, we realize that sin has intrinsic consequences. Do you know what the word intrinsic means? If I run a stop sign, they haul me into court, the judge fines me $300. Is that fine imposed or intrinsic? That's imposed. Nothing by driving through a stop sign automatically pulls $300 out of my wallet. It's imposed to impress on me not to do it again. But if I go up to the top of a tall building and say, all my life I've kept the law of gravity faithfully, I think today I'll just break it once, just an inch, just a second. I'm just going to step off one inch for one second right back. Certainly the law wouldn't be that demanding. What are we going to discover? Law demands perfect obedience and a penalty. And you can yell, I'm sorry, all the way down and you'll hit just as hard. Right? And no judge... No judge has to declare you guilty and impose a penalty. The penalty's built in. With a relational definition of sin, I believe we can see that the consequences are intrinsic. Sin is killing us. Now, with an imposed model, you can hear the two little old ladies in the church lobby one Sabbath morning. Did you hear about Johnny? He broke his leg. The other one says, yeah, I heard about Johnny. He went skiing on Sabbath. He broke his leg. It's a shame Johnny went skiing on Sabbath because he broke his leg. Yeah, if he only hadn't gone skiing on Sabbath, maybe he wouldn't have broken his leg. What kind of a picture do you have of God? You ski on my Sabbath, I'll break your leg. I am, by the way, I'm living proof of that doctrine. I broke my right arm right here twice age 7 and age 15, both times playing on Sabbath. I should be motivated to good Sabbath keeping. That's the imposed model. You know, the Puritans had their version, God is holding you over hell by a thin string, Jonathan Edwards and the sinner in the hands of the angry God, you know, and if you misbehave, he will clip that string and you will go down into eternal torment. Boy, you better be good. And every week they would motivate you to another week of good behavior out of fear. And we have our own veggie version of that in Adventism. We've got our end time events charts. We've got our judgment. We have all kinds of ways to try to motivate each other to sit on the edge of good behavior and try harder because Jesus could come tomorrow. You know, I believe that the Bible does say the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And you know what? Most of us probably came to the Lord the first time because we didn't want to die. And God said, welcome home. And then he says, but perfect love casts out all fear. He doesn't want us being afraid to die so we're motivated to good living. He wants us to fall in love and know our dad's going to take care of us and let love change our hearts. With a behavioral definition of sin, death becomes the imposed punishment of God. With a relational definition of sin, death becomes the intrinsic 
consequence that God is trying to save us from. Notice this verse from the Old Testament, Jeremiah 2.19. Your own wickedness will correct you. Your backslidings will rebuke you. Know therefore and see that it's an evil and a bitter thing to abandon the Lord your God. It's not saying God will beat on your head if you abandon him. It says you'll reap beating on your head. Um, The New Living Translation, your wickedness will bring its own punishment. Your turning from me will shame you. You will see what an evil and bitter thing it is to abandon the Lord your God. Now, please, I'm going to say one more caveat here. I'm not saying God never judges and God never kills. He brought the flood and he'll bring fire at the end. But I believe if we study all those very carefully, every one of those is a rescue mission, not a punishment mission. But love can do drastic things, but it always functions from love. If God doesn't intervene, we're all going down due to our own sin. I like to put it this way. We're all born on the Titanic after it hit the iceberg. It doesn't matter whether you're good or whether you're bad. You're going to be just as dead when the ship goes down. The only thing is, is there a lifeboat and is there a seat for me? When God chose Israel, you can read it in the book of Deuteronomy. He said, I didn't choose you because you were big, famous, and powerful. I chose you because you were the weak, puniest bunch around. But if you'll follow me, I'll put a hedge around you. You're not warriors. You can't fight a battle. But man, you trust me, I'll put a hedge around you, and those nations that come to destroy you will beat themselves to death against the wall of my protection. Even when all your men go to festival at the same time, and every nation around you knows there's not a single man left over age 12 to protect the borders and the border towns, I will be your protection. God says, trust me. I got you covered. I got you covered. And what did Israel say? No, God, leave us alone. We want to do it our way. And they kept trying to do it their own way. And God would lower the wall a little bit. They'd get run over. They'd they'd confess and repent. God would build the wall back up, throw the guys out. And then they'd do it all over again. And they discovered over time it was an evil and bitter thing to abandon God. Remember, if God gives you free will and you say, God, leave me alone, what's going to happen if he leaves you alone? He's honoring your free will and you're going to die. Right? He doesn't have to impose punishment. If he just did what we asked him to, we'd all be dead. Which means I believe God's keeping everybody in this world alive today, trying to talk them out of their bad choices before he pulls out completely. Because when he pulls out, we're done. But he has to eventually pull out or he's not love and he doesn't give free will. So I have three phrases that I have come to use over and over again through the years. Number one, God does not kill sinners. Sin is killing us. I'm not saying in the end he won't pull the plug. I believe he will. He'll put sin out of its misery. But God doesn't kill sinners. Sin is killing us. Number two, I had a young lady ask me once, a 15-year-old, how can I love a God who says, serve me or die? Now it does kind of sound like God says, serve me or die, doesn't it? I mean, if you don't serve me, you're going to die. But it sounds kind of like, you know, the guy says to the young lady, I'd love to take you out to dinner and uh, take you to a concert and I'll pay the bill and I'll respect you and I'll bring you home. I'll take good care of you. Will you go out with me? Oh, and by the way, if you say no, I'll stalk you down and kill you slowly. Would you want to go out with that person? No. And yet that's so often what God is presented as. 
I've got this beautiful heavenly resort that I want to take you to if you'll love me, but if you don't, I'll roast you. No, 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 no. There's something wrong with that. But it almost sounds that way. Serve me or die. And I remember I, I sent up this little instantaneous prayer, you know, this millisecond prayer to God. I need a 15-year-old's answer here. I could talk for an hour, but I need a quick answer. And it went zinging through my head. God doesn't say serve me or die. He says you're dying. Serve me and live. Oh, man, that was a relief. You're dying. You're born on the Titanic. The ship's already going down. He didn't torpedo the boat because you sinned. You're on a sinking ship. Serve me and live. Oh, I like that. And then this one. Jesus did not come to save us from what God is going to do to us because we sinned. Jesus is God come to save us from what sin is doing to us. Now you meditate on that one for a while. This is a phrase that I've developed over the last 30 years. Jesus didn't come to save us from what God is going to do to us because we sinned. I don't know if you've heard it, but I've heard it time and time again. God hates sin, right? He can't stand sin and sinners around. Light puts out darkness, you know. And so God in his wrath is about to wipe out sin. And Jesus jumps in the way. And Jesus gets wiped out and said, and now God's okay with me. Somehow that the idea that God took his wrath against sin out on Jesus so he's no longer angry with us. I'm sorry, people, but that is pure paganism. Jesus didn't save us from what God was going to do to us because we sinned. Jesus is God come to save us from what sin is doing to us. We get Jesus and Santa Claus all mixed up. He's making a list. He's checking it twice. He's going to find out who's naughty or nice. He sees you when you're sleeping. He sees you when you're awake. He knows when you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. You better watch out. You better not pout. You better not cry. I'm telling you why Jesus is coming to town. And boy, is he mad. We kind of get that view. If we can see the separation from God as a heart problem and recognize that he is the source of life and that we're going to die because we've separated from the source of life as a natural consequence that if God ever does take our life, it'll be to put us out of misery, not put us into misery. We're cutting the cord to life when we sin. Telling God to leave us alone, and he's the source of life, therefore the consequence is unlife. Think about it this way. Electric light. If I pull the plug, what happens to the light? If I pull the plug, what happens to the light? It goes out. That's right. Now, is there still life juice in the power circuit? Yes. Was the electrical circuit punishing the lamp for disconnecting? No. Is it the electrical circuit's fault that the light went out? No. Is there any wrath or anger against the lamp resulting in punitive judgment? No. It's an intrinsic consequence. I go scuba diving. And I cut the hose between... The tanks and my regulator, what's going to happen? I'm going to die. Was there still life in the tank? Yes. Is the tank punishing me for cutting the hose? No, just natural consequence. Is it the tank's fault that I died? No. Is there any wrath or anger in the tank against me for cutting the hose? No, there's no punitive judgment. There's simple cause and effect results. You know what I believe about the final destruction of the wicked? God will bring them to a quick and merciful end. 
rather than letting the prolonged agony of the natural results take place. I don't believe God kills sinners. I believe sin is killing us. And if God ever does anything, he cuts the anguish short in mercy. When we apply the relational key, a lot of things straighten out. The wages of sin is not an imposed penalty. It's an intrinsic result of a broken relationship that has led to horrendous behavior. Let's try another verse. Whatever is not of faith is sin. This is one of the best definitions of sin in the Bible. Literally, what everything not out of trust is sin. What does that mean? Any action that you engage in outside of a trust relationship with God is sin. That can be giving your entire fortune to help the poor. That can be helping little old ladies across the street, whether they want to cross the street or not. You know what I'm saying? You can be the most philanthropical person, no such word, in the world, Philanthropic person, thank you. But if you're living a life outside of a trust relationship with Jesus Christ, you are living a life of sin. Because sin's primary definition is not what you're doing, it's who you're in or not in relationship with. Whatever's not from faith is sin. Could it be clearer? Every behavior, even good one, is sin if you're living outside of a relationship with God. Remember, we used this earlier today. The people asked Jesus, what might we do in order that we might work the works of God? What does God want us to work on? And Jesus came back, the work God wants you to work on is that you might trust in me, whom he has sent. The core issue is trust. God tells us what God wants us to work on, and that is trust. I remember Morris Venden years ago, back when I was in college, saying, you cannot trust someone you do not know. I had to think about that. That seemed awfully black and white. Isn't it more nuanced than that? As I thought about it, I think he's absolutely right. You can't really trust someone you don't know. You can take a chance. You can presume. I heard recently somebody said, you know, 40 years ago we were told not to talk to strangers. You know, 30 years ago we were told not to get in cars with strangers. Now we dial Uber or Lyft and get in cars with strangers. Why do I get in the car with a Lyft driver? We took one Thursday to get to the airport. I don't know him. I guess based on the fact that the company has vetted him in some way, and I I assume the system says he's okay. I don't trust him. I kind of trust the system. What will happen if an Uber driver kills somebody? That trust will be gone overnight, won't it? Well, I'll be afraid to get in those cars. We can't trust someone we don't know. We may trust the system. We don't know the pilot, but we trust the system that checks the planes out and checks the pilots out. That's why the Max 10s or 8s or whatever they're called are on the ground right now from Southwest. It's because somebody didn't check the system well enough and we lost confidence. You can't trust a person you don't know. You might trust a system and therefore let the person be in charge. You can't trust someone you don't know. Now, if you get to know someone who's trustworthy, what's the inevitable automatic result? The more you know them, the more you'll trust them, right? If you get to know someone who's not trustworthy, what's the inevitable result? The more you know them, the less you'll trust them. And I'll try as you may, you can't make yourself trust a person who's proven themselves untrustworthy. You just can't do it. 
and really tries you made, you can't make yourself distrust the person who's proven trustworthy. Trust is the result, the inevitable result, of relationship and character. God says work on trust. How do we work on trust? Trust is a byproduct of knowing. Eternal life is knowing Jesus. If I get to know someone, trust will go up or down based on their character and our relationship. So I'm going to guess that if I get to know Jesus, I'm going to end up trusting him. And the more I know him, the more I'll trust him. And the more I trust him, the more he can transform. To build faith, work on relationship, focus on becoming better acquainted. The more you know him, the more you'll trust him. And whatever happens, good or bad, is beside the point. Whatever happens outside that root relationship with Jesus, apart from him, is the core issue of sin. And when we move into that relationship, the new byproduct is going to be transformation. Jesus makes it abundantly clear that the sin problem is a heart problem. In the Sermon on the Mount, he says, blessed are the pure in heart, not blessed are the pure in behavior. He says that the core issue of murder and adultery is a heart level. The cure has to come at the heart level. If you're angry, you're guilty of murder in God's eyes. We just think we were pretty good because we didn't hit them. God says, I see the heart. Same with adultery, which ultimately comes down to a heart transformation. Matthew 12, 34, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So if it's garbage coming out, what's the problem? You've got a garbage heart. These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but they're heart is far from me. It's a heart problem. These things that proceed from the mouth come out of the heart. So if you're going to fix what's coming out of the mouth, what do you have to fix? The heart behind the mouth. Jesus is abundantly clear on that. I love this verse. 1 John 3, 6. Everyone while abiding in him is not sinning. Now this is another one of those participle phrases. While abiding is a participle. Everyone while abiding in him is not sinning. Now, I remember the Adventist arguments back in college on this. What do you mean? If I'm abiding in Jesus, I won't be committing any sins? And we're thinking behaviorally. Yeah. What do you mean? Let's see. So if I'm really abiding in Jesus, I won't commit a sin, which means if I transgress in behavior, I must not be really abiding, which means if I'm still sinning, I'm not saved and I'm a mess. We're thinking behaviorally. What is the core issue of sin? Not abiding. We broke abiding at the tree. That's the core issue that results in bad behavior. So if you're abiding, you're not sinning because not abiding is the core issue of sin. He's not really asking the question, if you're abiding, might you ever make a mistake? If you're abiding, you're not sinning. You're not not abiding. That makes sense? If you're abiding, you're not not abiding? Because it's abiding that's the key issue of sin. If we think relationally, that suddenly makes sense. The focus of my life is to abide in Jesus. He promises if I let him begin a good work, he'll finish it. He promises to transform me. He says, you abide, I will transform. And if I'm not committing the core sin of not abiding, he's actually able to do something in my life. All right. So abiding is living in a daily intimate friendship with Jesus. Abiding is the cure for sinning and misbehavior. 
If you're staying out of trouble but have no relationship with Jesus, you're living in sin even if you have an impeccable moral track record. Which brings us back to our core verse. Here are the facts. God has already given us eternal life. This life is packaged in the person of his son. The one while having the son, there's another participle again, while having the son has life. If you have life, you have the son. The one while not having the son of God does not have the life. These things I wrote to you in order that you might know that you are having eternal life, the ones while trusting in the name of the son of God. Notice while trusting and while having are the same thing. Is it possible to know you're in a relationship with Jesus? I believe it is. Therefore, is it possible to know you're saved? I believe it is. Is it possible for me to know I'm in a relationship with my wife? Yes. Therefore, is it possible for me to know I have a marriage? Yes. And by the way, once upon a time, Marilyn and I walked into a church totally unmarried. And the preacher, her father, said, do you? And we said, we do. And we walked out totally married. Have we ever been any more married than the day we walked out of that church? No. Has our relationship changed? Oh, yeah. If you don't grow together, you grow apart. We're very different people. But we're not any more married than the day we got married. And I believe if you marry Jesus, if you get in Jesus, if you have Jesus, you're as saved as we were married the day we got married. Life will go through stages. You'll change. You'll be transformed. You'll go through ups and downs. But it's all inside salvation, not in order to get saved. You'll never be more saved than the day you got saved. But you may act a lot more saved. You may understand a lot. Does that make sense? Jimmy always wanted a red Corvette. One day, Jimmy met Linda, who owned a red Corvette. He immediately fell in love. He also likes Linda. They get married. She adds his name to the red Corvette. Does Jimmy now own a red Corvette? Yes. Unfortunately, they divorce. Now things get a little more technical. In Arizona, they'd have to cut the Corvette in half. But I understand that in Washington State, so we'll go with that, something that you fully own prior to the marriage, whether this is a prenup or not, something you own fully prior, you own going out of the marriage. So we're going to have them divorce in Washington. So when they get divorced, Johnny's name comes off the title. Does Johnny own a red Corvette anymore? No. Get the girl get the Corvette. Lose the girl, lose the Corvette. It's like that with Jesus. You get Jesus, you get everything. You lose Jesus, you ain't got nothing. Jesus lived the perfect life that's necessary for salvation. He then died the consequences of all sin. God laid on him the sin of us all, made him to be no sin. He bore our sins in his body. And Jesus experience the results of sin, all sin. He rose from the grave and conquered death. And when you get Jesus, you get everything. Marriage is a good illustration once more. If the day I married Marilyn, she had a million dollars in the bank and I owed a million dollar debt, the minute we say I do, we're both broke. Right? 
So when I marry Jesus, notice this verse says when you have Jesus, not when you have Jesus' credit card. Jesus doesn't hand you a credit card with a bunch of assets on it. Every time you sin, you can swipe it and the sin will be paid for. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus only gives you himself. So when you get Jesus, it's like a marriage. What's on his account? Perfect righteousness and perfect payment. What's on my account? A bunch of red ink. When we get together, his perfect payment sucks up my debt and left on our joint account is perfect righteousness. And if I'm in Jesus, there's no way I can be lost. If I'm in Jesus. If you have the Son, you have life. And if you don't have the Son, you don't have a prayer. Everyone is trying to get the assurance of eternal life. There are two popular views in our world. One is called predestination. God decides you don't. You don't have a free will anyway. To his glory, you're going to go to heaven or hell. Just be pleased with it. The other one is called eternal security. We call it once saved, always saved. Once you accept Jesus, he not only will never turn away from you, he will never let you turn away. So you don't really have a free will. You give it up by getting saved. I'd like to argue with no free will, there's no love. So either there wasn't any love in the first place or you give it up to get saved. But the reality of Scripture, I believe, is that you get saved, you maintain your free will, salvation comes through a relationship with Jesus Christ. And if we understand relationships, they are at the very core of the meaning of life. And in Jesus, we both have free will and we have assurance because love gives assurance. I don't lose my free will or I never had it. I keep my free will. But love is what keeps me in the family, not fear, not constraint. I have no fear that when I get home, my wife will have changed the locks. Why? Because we have a good relationship. She could, but I have no fear. Does that make sense? Staying saved is about continuing in a daily, ongoing fellowship of friendship and relationship with Jesus. Romans 8.15, you did not receive the spirit of bondage, again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Daddy, Father, Abba. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. We are adopted into a family. How do parents treat children in the family in a healthy household? If the kid soils his diaper or spills the milk, are they kicked out till they get their act together? No, we have wipes and diapers and laundry and all the things necessary. We can clean you up. You stick with the family, you'll grow out of this stuff. The child's assurance, security, is not based on its behavior. It's based on the fact that the child is in a loving relationship. What about God's family? If earthly parents do that, what does God do? We mess up. God throws us out till we get our act together. People around here don't act like that. No, he says we have heavenly laundry and pampers and wipes. And we'll grow you up. And sometime you won't need those. But in the meantime, while you're falling and failing, we will help you grow. And you're secure in the family. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Have you received him? Have you believed in his name? then have you become a child of God? Absolutely. And will God, will God ever throw you out of the family? No. 
All the Father has given to me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. And that's the strongest negative in the Greek language. I will absolutely not, uh-uh, never, no way throw you out of the family. Let me ask you, is it possible to sin bad enough and long enough for God to throw you out of the family? No. But there are two ways out. Number one, he doesn't lock you in the closet so you can't leave. You're always free to leave. The only thing that keeps you in the family is love. And number two, if you get so busy up in your room trying to clean the place or get an education or just amusing yourself that you never come down to dinner, you'll die of starvation up there and they'll have to haul you out and bury you. But if you come down daily for dinner, you'll never die. Does that make sense? If we dine daily with Dad, we have eternal life. My cousin Lee moved out of the house to go become independent. I told you about the letter last night. Something else happened on that fateful day. He got in his Corvair van and drove away. Say goodbye to your independent son. Four hours down the road, he had a flat tire. No problem. He has a spare. He gets out, opens the back of his Corvair van, discovers he left the spare leaning against the house. This is long before cell phones, so he had to hitchhike to the next town at midnight, go to a payphone, and who do you think he called? He called Dad. Dad picks up the phone at 1 a.m., Hi, Dad, this is your independent son. (laughs) Guess what? I left my spare tire leaning against the house. And you know what Dad said, welcome to independence, click, right? No. Dad said, I'll be on my way in 15 minutes. Four hours later, there was a knock on the window, a flashlight and a tire, and he said, let's get this thing fixed. Even when I determined to be independent, my loving father doesn't say you're out of here. He says, we still love you. You haven't been written off. Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. We don't even know our own potential. But we know that when he is revealed, we'll be like him, for we will see him as he is. What does that tell you, people? You join the family. You enter the family. He pulls you in the family. You don't even know all he's got in mind ahead. But one thing is guaranteed. He'll have you ready when you get there. I don't know how. That's called trust. I just keep relating. Does behavior matter? Yes. Behavior matters so much that God says, I won't trust you with behavior. I'll take care of your behavior. You work on relationship. Behavior is never the basis of salvation. Jesus makes himself responsible for the reproduction of his character in the lives of his people who stay in relationship abiding in him. The one thing Jesus can't do is seek relationship with himself for you. The one thing you can't do is change your heart. So we need to let God do what he can do and change our heart, and we need to do what we can do and stay in relationship. Maury Venda talked about the relationship elevator as an illustration. I walk up to the elevator, and I push the button, the doors open, and Jesus is the elevator operator. He says, welcome to the relationship elevator. I get on board. He says, where do you want to go? I say, all the way to the top. He pushes the top button. He says, good choice, and we start going up. And all of a sudden, the elevator jostles violently, and I'm on the floor. And Jesus says, you know, that happens every once in a while. And he helps me up, and he says, now, if you'll lean on me, you won't fall down. And so for a few gazillion floors, I lean on him. And then pretty soon, I get my elevator legs, you know. And I'm over there saying, look, Jesus, no hands, you know. Doing pretty good. All of a sudden, thing buffets, and down I go. What does he do? Stop the elevator, open the door, and say, you're off. No, he helps me up again, and he says, 
but lean on me and you won't fall down. And as I learn to lean on Jesus, to depend on him more and more and more and never try my own elevator legs, he can keep me from falling. Transformation happens. Now, two things are guaranteed. He guarantees that he'll get us all the way to the top floor. And he guarantees to have us ready to get off when we get there. Now, you do recognize that if God decided to take us all to heaven right now, our angels would be standing at the door saying, God, please, no, don't let him in. They'll wreck the place. <laughs> and I don't know how he's going to have me ready to not wreck the place. But he said he will. He said he'll get me there. And when he's revealed, we'll be like him. Again, I don't know how he's going to do it. And I'm not even going to try to speculate on how he's going to do it. Because I don't know how he's going to do it. But he said he'll do it. And that's called righteousness by faith. A couple more verses. Well, we already did this one. Being confident of this very thing that he who began a good work will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And how are we supposed to look at that? With confidence. Assurance. Now you have every spiritual gift you need as you eagerly wait for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me tell you, if you don't know you're ready, you're not eagerly waiting. He will keep you strong to the end, so you will be free from all blame on the day when our Lord Jesus Christ returns. I don't know how he's going to have me free from all blame then, but he says he'll do it. Amen? Amen. I abide. He says he'll do it. God will do this, for he is faithful to do what he says. He has invited you into partnership with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. How do you like this picture? Is that warm, fuzzy picture? There you are. Puny little you standing in front of a 10-story high law of God. Jesus is up on the top and he's about to pass judgment. How do you feel? You know, Satan walks in and he's got this scroll and he unrolls it. It's 12 miles long. has all my sins on it. I'm toast, right? There's no way I'm going to make it. They call my name. Gary Vendon. Morris Vendon used to say, well, at least I'll be down near the bottom of the alphabet. <laughs> Then again, Jesus said the first will be last, so who knows? But they call my name, and Satan rolls out his scroll, and I know I'm toast. When I'm about to step up there and get my sentence, a muscular former carpenter in a white robe steps forward, and he raises his hand, and when his sleeve falls back, you see the scars. And he says, Father, Gary's a friend of mine, and I told him he wouldn't have to be here for this because I'm standing in for him. And the father says, anyone who's a friend of yours is a friend of mine. Welcome home, son. Most assuredly, I say to you that he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life. Not will have it, might have it, hopes to have it, but has it. And shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death into life. I believe in the judgment. But the judgment is good news. Because when the judgment shows up, the one while hearing my word and while trusting in the one who sent me is having eternal life, literally. And in the judgment, the word judgment there is crisis, from which we get the English word crisis. Good news, folks, the judgment won't be a crisis because I go into the judgment already passed from life into death. Believe it or not, none of us will change sides in the judgment. Whatever the judgment is, you go out the same way you came in. 
And if I go in in Jesus, the judgment is good news. I am being set free. It's not bad news. I will be present, but it will not be a crisis because Jesus will stand in for me. And Satan will be disarmed and cast out. My eternity is not in double jeopardy in the judgment. I come in already alive forever. My assurance of salvation is based on my friendship with Jesus, not on my behavior or misbehavior, but on an abiding friendship with Jesus that will transform my behavior. Good news. If you know Jesus, then you know you are saved. You know you will become like him, even though you're not quite sure how it's going to get done in time. He says he'll do it. And you will know the one who will accomplish all of that. Jesus says, come to me, stay with me, I'll take it from there, outcome guaranteed. No Jesus, no worries, mate. No Jesus, everything's going to be all right. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. It's not about what you do, it's about who you know, and who you know will transform what you do while guaranteeing the outcome right from the start. Jesus, thank you for standing in my place before Pilate and on the old rugged cross. Thank you for promising to stand in my place on judgment day so I can stand in your place in the heavenly country. May we grasp the power of love that is so much greater than the power of fear. May we accept a new definition of sin as breaking relationship. May we put our work on what you want us to work on, and that is knowing you and trusting you. May we thereby claim that when we have Jesus in relationship with you, we have eternal life. You've made it plain. Would you set it into our hearts today and use that as the powerful platform on which to springboard our transformation, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.